This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting Friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org local. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to Star Diary, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings listeners and welcome to Star Diary, a weekly guide to the best things to see in the Northern Hemisphere's night sky. In this episode, we'll be covering the coming week from the 13th to the 19th of June. I'm Ezzie Pearson, the magazine's news editor, and I'm joined on the podcast today by reviews editor Paul Manny. Hello, Paul. Hello there, Ezzie. We can have a look, another look at what's going on in the night sky. There's always something, isn't there? Absolutely. And so what is that something this week? Well, we'll ignore the morning sky to a certain extent because we've still got the same old groupings of planets. We've got Jupiter, Saturn, Mars, we've got Venus, we've got Neptune and even Vesta, the minor planet as well. So they're still there. So if you really like the morning sky, you can go and have a look at them if you want. We have covered them a lot in the podcast, so you can always go back to previous episodes or you can always go to the website www.skyatnightmagazine.com where we have many guides on how to see the planets if that is your thing and you are interested. Exactly. And there is loads there to to, to entertain you for hours. So it certainly does me. So uh, June 13th to the 14th, we're talking about getting closer to full moon. Now, on the 13th, we mentioned last week, at the end of last week, so on the 12th, um, Scorpius. And we actually had the moon quite close to Graphius and Deshuba with Antares to their left. 
Well, the next morning or next evening, I should say, 11 o'clock again. Keep looking about 11 o'clock because the sky is a bit darker, so it's a bit better than earlier. Um, you have the moon the other side of Antares this time. And this is the one where people will probably notice there's a bright star to the right of the moon. And what's that star? And you'll say, ah, that's Antares. That's on the 13th. The moon will look nearly full. And it's a bit of an illusion because to the naked eye, Sometimes a day or so either side of full, it can still look full to the naked Absolutely. eye. You need a telescope to really... It, binoculars might give you a better hint sort of thing, but a telescope will clearly show you that it isn't quite full as such. So, yes, so on the 13th, it's to the left of Antares, which is the heart of Scorpius. Full moon technically occurs later that morning, about half past 11 the next morning. So it's quite close to full moon, so it will look almost... Full. But as it happens, that fourth, you know, when we're actually on the 14th, when it is full moon itself, we will actually see the full moon the next night on the 14th, that evening. So when it rises, and by then, it's actually moved into Sagittarius, which is one of those things. Now, the full moon is, as we've mentioned in past weeks, is, is pretty poor for cratal relief because the, the light is straight down onto the surface. So you don't get the sharp shadows cast by the moon, uh, or the sunlight shining on the moon at an angle. But it does give you the chance to see the rays, as we mentioned, with all these wonderful rays, Chris, and there's loads of them again. There's lots of guides actually on the on our website to actually tell you how to find those rays and have a look at them. When you look at the seas, you mentioned sort of thing, you can actually see them. But the thing about this is lots of them, and the prominent ones I always think are the Tycho, Copernicus, Kepler, and Aristarchus. Uh, so well worth having a look at them, but there are others as well. But the 14th, the full moon on the 14th is also classed as a strawberry full moon. Now, mm -hmm. the names of the moons is a bit of an oddity sort of thing. It's sort of like sort of a more modern recent thing that we started taking on a lot of these mm -hmm. names. A lot of them are from the Americas. Yes. I think even for, some of them are actually associated with the American Indian sort of thing. The sort yeah, of names with the, that they the actually First take. Nation peoples of America, yeah. Exactly. So, uh, you know, so this is a strawberry full moon. So it won't look the colour of strawberry. Although, if you watch it when it's first rising, you've got the same effect that affects the sun when the sun's setting or rising and it's very red. You've got the atmospheric refraction taking place. So the moon can look reddish when it first rises. And again, if you've got a clear horizon and you can know, you can work out where the moon actually rises using planetarium software, you can watch for it. And it's quite an impressive thing to see it gradually change colour as it rises mm. high and goes from this sort of like strawberry old colour to a sort of like an orangey colour and then to a pale yellow and then eventually back to a, a silvery moon. Oh mm -hmm. dear, I'm going to sort of sort of start seeing like Doris Day by the light of the silvery moon now. That shows my <laughs> age, doesn't it? Sort of thing. Yes, I, yes, I remember that film. So it's also not just a full moon and this strawberry full moon. It's also occurring at perigee. In fact, perigee is only about just under 12 hours away from the point of full moon. So we call it, technically they're called perigee full moons. <laughs> <laughs> or stitch, I can never put out stitchy, stitchy. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> They're incredibly <laughs> complex. But the common name now has become into parlance. This is the idea of the super moon. It was done by uh, an astrologer, uh, Richard Knoll, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. um, 
and it's it's a it, it's a bit of a bane between astronomers. The, the the real diehards are oh you can't call it a supermoon, but it's <laughs> the public looking at the moon. You know, yes, it, it's, it's the popularization. That's what it is. So yeah. yes, it's not an I, official title, but it will be a supermoon. And Perigee's so close; it's even closer next month. So we can cover that next month yes. as well. So I uh, you think know. the the term that you were you were scrabbling for earlier is perigee syzygy. Syzygy. Um, that's so, syzygy. Think of scissors. They are that, <laughs> now. I know how to do it. Scissors. <laughs> I, I definitely think that uh, Supermoon is a much more snappy title, um, and that's probably why it's a bit more more popular with the public. Um, but yes, it, it's. I always think it's good to to any excuse to look up at the moon because it's just so accessible. You don't. It, you can. You can always see it. And um, like you always said, if you can't see the moon, it's probably not a good day to be doing astronomy anyway. <laughs> but as long as it's you know even vaguely clear, you'll be able to see the moon. And it, it's always a great opportunity to get out there and persuade people to start taking up the hobby, even if it's just, you know, looking up at the night sky occasionally. Exactly. I mean, that's what we're all about, is promoting the subject, getting more people into it. And, you know, if we can popularise certain things. And I, th- I think we should take over the term supermoon from the astrologer. We, we should own mm. it. We should mm. take over it. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, as I say, it does get the public looking out. I do get people asking me about the supermoon and uh, and what it is, and so yeah. I, I do explain. But the fact that they're, they're approaching me means they're approaching an astronomer yeah. to actually talk about it, and I'm sure you get the same as well. But uh, it is it is interesting. I mean, I think it gets a bit overblown about the size of the moon. One of the, one of yeah. the sad things about the media is they often blow it out of proportion and say, oh, it's a super big moon this particular night. Well, the reality is, if you can remember the size of the moon the previous month, then you're doing extremely well and you can visually yeah. compare them. Photography-wise, you can do, of course. I mean, that, and that's I, what amateurs do. I have know. seen some really brilliant photographs where they do composites showing the various full moons um, and they've all been adjusted so that they're the same size and you can see them getting bigger and smaller and uh, I think those are really good. So if, if you're an astrophotography person and fancy doing something a little bit different, maybe there's an idea for you. There's a project, isn't it? Sort of thing. Absolutely. You show the size of the moon. And it also, the thing that people forget is that, you know, the perigee is coinciding with full moon this particular time and will do in July as well. So it's even closer in July. But the mm. thing is, perigee, it does drift apart. So perigee can occur when it's first quarter and it occur also when it's last quarter. So not obviously in the same, you know, time frame, but, you know, give it a few months and it'll be occurring when it's, say, last quarter. And so you could actually do the same project with the last quarter or the first quarter moon. In fact, with any time moon, you can work out when it occurs at perigee and then make a point of photographing it at perigee, regardless of what the phase is, and then building up this wonderful project, this picture, showing its size difference. But visually, it's very difficult to see the size difference, but photographically, it shows up extremely well. So there, that's, that's, I mean, there's loads of projects you can do. And again, you don't need necessarily to have, you know, really dark skies for this. This is the, you know, we're getting into the summer skies, aren't we? We aren't quite mm. technically in summer, but it's light enough. I mean, there's, um, so meteorologically, uh, from the 1st of June, it's um, summer. <laughs> so there we are. So, mm. uh, you know, I always scream at the TV weatherman saying, no, no, wait until the 21st or the 22nd of June when we get the summer solstice. But uh, no, I, I can sort of understand their, their idea. Anyway, we actually find that the moon, of course, has been moving through Sagittarius then. And then we find on the 18th and 19th, 
we have a bit of a surprise because what's happening is that the planets do slowly, as the year progresses, rise earlier and earlier in the night. So by the time we get to the 18th and 19th, we're actually finding Saturn is rising around about midnight, which sort of, I always get excited about that sort of thing because it, I know that means it's not going to be long before Saturn is in the evening sky. And of course, usually when you get in Saturn rising sort of thing, when the sun sets, that's opposition. So that's the time to really get excited. But I like the idea that once it gets rising around about midnight, you know it's not going to be long before it's rising in the evening sky. So it's easier to actually observe. And although it's 2 a.m. in the morning on the 18th, we have the moon either side of Saturn. And we often describe it either side of a planet. But this is now back into the morning sky. But I say Saturn will rise around about midnight-ish. Now, the moon, is its orbit is below the ecliptic at the moment. So, of course, the moon is lower. So you'll have to wait a bit longer for the moon to actually rise. But it is now waning towards new. So the phase is decreasing in size. Saturn forms a shallow triangle with delta and gamma Capricorni in the early mornings of the 18th and 19th. And on the 18th, the waning moon joins them. Now on the 18th, it lies just above Zeta Capricorni. Now, again, it's not an exciting start, <laughs> but <laughs> it's close. And if you use binoculars, you will not mistake it. You will see there is a star below the moon. And this is Zeta Capricorni. And so you've got this grouping on the 18th sort of thing with the moon with Zeta, and then you've got Delta and Gamma, Capricorn, and then Saturn. And of course, if you put a telescope on Saturn, you'll be amazed at the rings. I mean, mm. a, a lot of people's first views, surely. I always think it should be mandatory. The first view through a telescope should be at Saturn because <laughs> it just blows you away. I mean, yeah, seeing definitely. the rings, you know. I had a, an eight, eight or nine-year-old at a public event I ran some years ago whereby uh, Saturn was very low and it was rising, but the telescope was almost horizontal. So it, you can see it's just above the horizon. But there was Saturn. So he looked through the telescope, looked at Saturn, and then cheekily turned around and says, oh, it's a slide at the end of the telescope. So I said, take another look. And he looked through the eyepiece and went, and I banged the telescope. Well, of course, the view wobbled. Now, if it was a slide, it wouldn't do that sort of thing. It stayed fixed, but it wobbled all over the place. And he, oh, cool. In them <laughs> days, it was cool. But he, he was just absolutely blown away, the fact that you could see the rings. Because, you know, you think, oh, it's something you can see only in a telescope and photographs. But visually seeing it for himself, it, it yeah. just blew him away. It's definitely that one. Uh, the other one for me was the first time I saw the moons of Jupiter. Um, and the first time I saw all four Galilean moons of Jupiter, um, that kind of idea that we can see not just planets, but the moons going around them, uh, just kind of like, because I am fully aware of just how far away those things are. So <laughs> it's kind of like, it blew my mind a little bit. And you're following the footsteps the of Galileo. I mean, exactly. You know, I mean, and, and to me, that's the, it's the link we sometimes have with the past when we following the footsteps. I mean, of course, Galileo looked at Saturn and he saw it's described as appendages. He didn't say ears. He mm. said appendages sort of thing, you know, to Saturn. Um, so we've always assumed they he do, meant ears as such. But uh, They you know, do but, definitely look like ears. Oh, like yeah. if, you haven't, if you haven't got a, a good enough <laughs> telescope to, to fully sort of resolve the rings, they look like ears. They're blobs <laughs> either side, aren't they? Depending on what time of year you'll watch uh, or time of the cycle, because the, the rings of, of Saturn do tilt up and down. So sometimes it's just a line and at other times you, you can sort of see it quite a good angle to it. So it does actually depend, you know, how, how eerie 
they look. <laughs> Which was another proof that planets were inclined like the Earth mm. is inclined, that Saturn yeah. has a tilt very similar to the Earth, a little bit higher. I think it's about 29 degrees, if I remember, of Saturn. So we get quite a grandstand view of the rings. But as I say, I, I've seen the ring plane crossings and I, it's really, really eerie to look at Saturn and go, mm. where's the rings? Where's yeah. Nick the rings? Because they were so thin. Um, they were only the best amateur astronomers with the best instruments were able to see that thin line of the rings. That was quite something. Damien mm-hmm. Peach is one of them. Absolutely mm-hmm. amazing that he took a picture like that. But Definitely of course, look up those pictures if you can. Yes, definitely. They're, they're absolutely amazing what he did. He did an entire cycle through the full season, uh, a year of Saturn, which is, again, 29 years uh, for Saturn. It's the orbital uh, path around the sun. So uh, that was quite an achievement, I have to say. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not good a good telescope, not a good enough planetary imager to really do that. But, you know... I try my best. But on, that was on the 18th. And on the 19th, the moon is the other side. So I mm. love it when it swaps sides sort of thing, you know. But then Saturn is to the upper right of the actual moon itself. So, uh, you know, again, it shows the clockwork motion that we mentioned about the moon going past the planets. But that's in the morning sky. And, of course, if you really want to leave it, so give it another hour. And Jupiter, Mars, Neptune and, uh, and Vesta... And eventually, just before the real bright... Always be careful. Don't observe when the sun's rising. Just just be very careful about that. Always be careful with the sun. Always be careful. Um, But you should catch, actually, uh, Venus as well. So there's plenty going on, but I just thought it was nice that technically Saturn is getting close to rising in the evening sky. We're getting close to that. So, uh, but to get it best, it's better to let it higher in the sky. So it's over in the southeast at 2 a.m. in the morning. So well worth having a look at that. And we mustn't forget, you know, this is the season for the noctilucent clouds, these night shining clouds. So again, keep a lookout roughly from the northeast to the northwest, just in case sort of thing. It's over in the northwest in the evening and drifts through north and then appears in the north uh, east in the morning mm. sky. Uh, but to have a look, you never know. You might see them. You know, it, it, it's close. We, we should get... I, I want to hope that we have a good display. Some Absolutely. years are good, some years are bad. You know, we've had some really <laughs> good displays. The, the year of Neowise, remember Comet Neowise? That was really good. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't have a good horizon to get the noctilucent clouds and Neowise, which was a great shame. Uh, so I was quite jealous of all the fantastic pictures. But that was quite <laughs> something to get the shimmering, bluey, silver view of the noctilucent clouds and this comet hung in them as well. But uh, keep a lookout. We won't have a comet, but uh, we will have, hopefully, some displays. Keep a lookout towards the north. And there you are, is it? That's another week done. Thank you very much for telling us all about that, Paul. It's a pleasure, and uh, see you for next week. If you want to find out even more spectacular sights that will be gracing the night sky throughout the month, be sure to pick up a copy of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we have a 16-page pull-out sky guide with a full overview of everything worth looking up for. Whether you like to look at the moon, the planets, or the deep sky, whether you use binoculars, telescopes, or neither, our sky guide has got you covered with the detailed star charts to help you track your way across the night sky. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Diary podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify.